people won't change unless they're given a reason and need to change and you end up with compliance at, at best rather than commitment. At that point, it is good to raise your voice, to convey an expression of disappointment, if not anger. And to your point, felt there was much more acceptance, particularly of junior individuals speaking up, giving their opinion. He noted, and I found this one absolutely fascinating, initially he thought there were more complications from surgery at Mass General than where he worked in Copenhagen. But then he said he realized that, no, it was actually just that they were talking about the complications because they felt they could learn from them and they wanted to know how to improve. And that was the way to do it. Uh, what sort of the genesis of what we call morbidity and mortality conferences, where the idea is to learn from the mistakes. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. A number of you who are regular listeners to the podcast will be aware of my good friend and my colleague, and co-author of my new book, uh, Dr. Ruth Gotian. Ruth reached out to me before Christmas, and she said, a colleague of mine has written a new book, and I think it's great, and she'd be a great guest on the podcast. Do you want to have a look? And, well, she sent me details of what it was about, and my first instinct was, how on earth does this fit with the theme of the Connected Leadership Podcast? But I was intrigued. So I said, send me a copy of the book, and despite it, be it being sort of quite a way away from my normal reading, I was absolutely engrossed in it. And going back uh, through it in the last few days to prepare for, for this discussion, I filled it with highlights. There were so many things that jumped out, both from general interest for me, but also that go to what we try and achieve on the podcast uh, in, in terms of looking at the role of professional relationships and what we're trying to achieve. So the author of that book is joining us today. She's a professor and vice chair of research in the Department of Anesthesiology at Whale Cornell Medical School alongside Ruth, where Ruth works. Uh, she's published across academic journals, and she's written this rather wonderful book called The Autumn Ghost. So we're going to talk about The Autumn Ghost, and we're going to look at collaboration and competition in battling the polio epidemic in the last century. So we're going to throw ourselves back the best part of 100 years for most of this discussion. Hannah Wunsch, thank you so much for joining me. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. I normally check before we go live. And, and I went into a panic halfway through that, realizing I hadn't asked you. Have I pronounced your name correctly, first of all? I have. Hannah's nodding because, A, I have forgotten to unmute her. So we're getting off to a flying start here. And, B, maybe she's forgotten it's a podcast. I don't know. Hannah, welcome. and Thank you for joining me. That was a good start, wasn't it? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's a real pleasure. It, it's great to have you on. I'm going to leave all of that in, by the way. No editing <laughs> here. <laughs> Not of my mistakes anyway. I've given a, a very, very high level overview or a teaser of what the book is about. So Hannah, can you just Give us a quick summary of what the book is about, why you wrote it, and of course, tell us what you mean by the autumn ghost as well. 
So, you know, my specialty, as you mentioned, is intensive care. I work in the ICU. And the story of the autumn ghost is really the origin story for my specialty. It's a story that's focused on a polio epidemic in 1952 in Copenhagen. And it turns out that this was a pivotal moment, uh, a moment of innovation when they figured out how to intervene and care for individuals who were dying of respiratory failure from polio. And it's the story of the suggestion by one anesthesiologist, Bjorn Ibsen, to do a tracheostomy, a, a little tube into the lungs, and to blow air, what's called positive pressure ventilation, into the lungs to keep people alive that way. And this was a kind of radical change in the way care was provided for these patients. So it was this kind of pivotal moment that I thought that that was going to be the focus of my book. But of course, it turned out as I kept going, I went down all kinds of rabbit holes of of recognizing that this was actually a very complex moment with all of these different threads and innovation and uh, interactions between individuals that I needed to, to share with, with everybody. And it's entitled The Autumn Ghost because the, the pol- polio itself is an enterovirus. It's what's called oral fecal transmission. And in most of the United States, Canada, it was what was referred to as the summer plague in the early part of the 20th century because it, it would arrive in the early summer, peak in July and August, and then disappear again. And in Scandinavian countries, no one really knows why, except it's further north, that the peak of the epidemics tended to be in the autumn, in September, October. And so uh, this particular epidemic I was writing about started in July and into August. And by mid-August, they were losing dozens of individuals, and they knew that they weren't even close to the peak of their epidemic yet, and they were going to see many you know, hundreds of deaths if they didn't do something. And one writer in the 1940s had described it, uh, the polio as the autumn ghost, and I felt that this really sort of encapsulated the kind of chilling fear of this disease and, in Scandinavian countries, the timing of those epidemics. So that's why it's titled The Autumn Ghost. So thanks for sharing that. And yes, it is an unusual topic. But as I said in my introduction, I found it absolutely fascinating. And there were so many areas in the story. You've touched on a couple of them that I'm going to come and and ask you about as we go through that really do shine a light on what we're trying to cover this podcast in terms of dealing with colleagues who can be difficult, getting people to engage and support you and what you're trying to achieve. All of this comes through in the story. So I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit in terms of how I prepare for the podcast and how I go about it. I went back through the book. I think I mentioned this in the introduction. I went through the highlights. So I'm just going to walk through those and go through the journey. We may well go deeper into a topic as we explore it, but it it doesn't necessarily follow chronologically topic to topic, but it's just here's a key talking point from the book, and then let's dig into that. So that's my plan for this conversation. But hey, who knows? Let's see where the conversation takes us. Uh, One of the things that comes out quite early in the book, so a lot of the action, if I can put it that way, takes place post-Second World War. But a lot of the doctors involved at the Blake Dam Hospital had been involved in the war. They were of that generation, and many of them had fought in the resistance against the Nazi occupation. One of the things you talk about in the book is how really deep bonds were forged during that experience and how that impacted medicine in Denmark and and the world in years to come. What did you mean by that? How did that shared experience have that impact? How did it play out in terms of working together on this vaccine? 
Yeah, well, I, I did mention rabbit holes, and one of the rabbit holes that I never expected to go down in writing a book about a polio epidemic was to find myself becoming an expert on uh, Danish resistance in World War II. I ended up checking about out about five books on the topic to understand what had happened. And it was one of those things where, as I interviewed people about the 1950s and their experience in Denmark and the, and the Copenhagen epidemic, the war just kept coming up in different ways. In one moment, the grandson of the man who was in charge of the hospital, the Blydam Hospital, pointed to his uh, a friend of this guy, Henry Lassen, in the photo and said, oh, he was a hero of the resistance. And I thought, oh, you know, that's interesting. And then someone else who was a patient in the epidemic showed me her ration card from 1952 and said, oh, I sort of said, what is this? And she said, oh, well, this is the card I had to hand in at the hospital uh, when I was admitted. And I thought, wow, it's, you know, seven years after the war has ended and and rationing is still an issue. Um, but really to get to, to the point you were interested in, um, I discovered that these bonds that were forged by some of the doctors, and they were very active in the resistance, resistance some of them, um, really, you know, they were involved in, with getting Jews out of Denmark in 1943. A lot of them hid patients in the hospitals under assumed names and made up diagnoses. It was a way of getting both resistance fighters in and out, and also uh, those who were sort of being hunted, like many of the Jews. They risked their lives, of course, doing this. A lot of the general practitioners who actually had cars and gasoline to get around, which most people didn't, were involved with the drops of resistance fighters by SOE in England and bringing in individuals' resources. And so all of that was at play. And what I found was that Events in 1952 and 1953, and in particular, one key event that occurred after the polio epidemic was shaped by these relationships that uh, Bjorn Ibsen, who's sort of the hero of this story, he's an anesthesiologist, he's actively involved in the polio epidemic, and then he wants the position as the first professor of anesthesiology at the University Hospital in Copenhagen, and he doesn't get the job. And he's really upset by this. He's very ambitious. And uh, it was whispered to me by a couple of different people that one of the reasons for this was the fact that one of the members of the committee to appoint this individual owed a favor from the war to another anesthesiologist who was in the running. And that uh, this man, this anesthesiologist, Ole Sesher is his name, had saved this man's life, who was a surgeon, during the war. And I never could quite get all the details, but, you know, there was something about a pistol and, you know, (laughs) um, a moment of terror. And that this was his payback in the form of an academic position. And so I found that really fascinating that there was these reverberations of these events many, many years earlier that then had these knock-on effects. And one of the knock-on effects then of that was that uh, Bjorn Ibsen went on to take a less prestigious position at a local community hospital, still a big hospital. And it's there that he really creates the first intensive care unit in the world. And he later actually reflected that if he'd gotten the job as professor, he wouldn't have had the time to do that. But instead, he was given sort of a lot more freedom and and free reign to do what he wanted. And he took a lot of what he'd learned in the polio epidemic, and he implemented it to really recognize that he could take care of many, many patients who were critically ill. And and we now recognize that as the, the first ICU in modern terms that we know about. So it ended up being sort of a happy 
problem that he had not getting this job, but I really does, it, it speaks to a lot of the kind of cronyism that we still see, of course, in not just academic, but sort of all, all business settings, I think, and workplace environments. And it's interesting to reflect on that there can be silver linings, in fact, <laughs> in this case, to an event that on the surface looks pretty awful in terms of some of those relationships. We still have that cronyism, of course, and you preempted what I thought might be a bit of a curveball question for you, but maybe it's not. And that was, you know, how much of this is still in play. Obviously, you would hope that any favours owed less around the he saved my life, therefore I have to give him a job nature. But <laughs> Right, you but how had much, a kind of a little slack for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think so. But but to what degree do do you still see cronyism in, in the profession? To what degree, how do we navigate that? And also on the positive side of, of these shared experiences, because that's shining a negative light on it, depending on how you look at it. But, but from the positive side, the ability to pull together, the ability to come together after already having been through highly adverse circumstances surely must have made this, this particular fight that group more resilient in this particular fight, how does that compare to what you went through as a doctor and the whole journey through COVID a few years ago? Do you think right, yeah, this generation um, lacked that that experience of working together? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, with regard to that idea of them all pulling together, I do think the fact that they'd dealt with such adversity in World War II in the hospitals, outside of the hospitals, that, that that really did impact, for example, Henry Lawson, the head of the hospital, his ability to kind of marshal people and, and deal with a huge administrative task when he ultimately realized that this was the way to take care of patients and he needed um, a huge amount of resources to do it. And he's an incredible administrator in that regard. Um, and the idea of everybody just pitching in and doing what's needed and dropping everything to help, that that really is, I think, a mentality that probably came from many years of that in, in World War II. I named one of the chapters in my book, I, I entitled it War. And I really, I went back and forth about that because a lot of people dislike the war analogies when we talk about healthcare and medicine. But, you know, tr I just, I couldn't find anything else that felt applicable in terms of thinking about what it's like to deal with a scenario like this. And, you know, and to your point a little bit how COVID felt of really being on the, you know, we talked about front lines and all of that during, during COVID. And so I think there are still a lot of legitimate analogies, people risking their lives, uh, people having to work together as teams unexpectedly. And, and, and all of those aspects really are serious parallels. Getting back to your question about kind of cronyism and issues in modern times, you know, I do, I guess I'm an optimist in general. I do think that one of the things that really has improved is awareness of this as a concept. You know, back in the 1950s, there was no conversation about whether this was good, bad, or, or different in terms of being an issue. This was just the way it was and the way people functioned. And I think that we are in a better place in terms of just, while it still is occurring, really people 
being much more reflective about those issues around hiring, around inclusivity, around all of those things. So it, I do believe we work in a better environment in that regard than was the case in the 1950s or, or earlier or even later, 60s, 70s. You know, I don't know if you watched Mad Men, but that was a big show over here in the US. And, uh, you know, it was really eye opening to me to sort of see some of the, the treatment in the workplace environment that people dealt with um, in the 1960s and 50s and 60s in that case. So um, I kind of hold on to that and think, oh, yes, we, we have gotten better in many ways. <laughs> I'm a late adopter, Mad Men. I didn't get on with it the first time it came out, but I've been giving it a go. So I'm up to about Series 3, and yes, it, there's a few jaw-dropping moments in there for sure. You talked about we're, we're better in terms of the culture now, in terms of our awareness of it. I wonder how much of it is awareness and how much of it is just acceptance. It was acceptable. It's not now. So maybe the awareness yeah, was, absolutely. was there. Absolutely. There was no one calling it out back in the 1950s as something to be con concerned about. Exactly. One of the other themes in the book that I think really resonated with me in terms of what we talk about on this podcast is cultural difference. So you've mentioned Bjorn Ibsen, one of the things you talk about uh, – across it, it happens over a period of time so you touch on time and again in the book is that he, he went to america and he was particularly struck by the differences in culture and how the american medical systems adapted more quickly and also one of the things that struck me is the doctors in the u.s uh lacked the same inhibition in expressing themselves that was the that was prevalent in scandinavia so it'd be quite interesting to hear a little bit more about that and, and what the key differences were that Ibsen saw between the US and Danish or Scandinavian cultures and what that meant in practice? Yeah, so Ibsen wanted to train as an anesthesiologist and it really didn't exist as a specialty in Denmark at that time, which is kind of hard to imagine that anyone and everyone gave anesthesia in Denmark and, you know, could be the secretary of the surgeon or the medical student. But he recognized that it was a, a new specialty where he needed expertise. So he traveled to Mass General Hospital in Boston uh, to train there for a year as an anesthesiologist. And it really clearly was a transformative experience, not only because he learned about anesthesia, but because, to you, as you've alluded to, he was struck by the differences in the medical culture he encountered. Now, I find this a little ironic because if I would reflect on what I imagine 1950s Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard medical school culture to be, I would probably describe that I expected it was extremely hierarchical. But apparently compared to the European version of medical culture, it was not, at least to his perception. And to your point, felt there was much more acceptance, particularly of junior individuals speaking up, giving their opinion. He noted, and I found this one absolutely fascinating, initially he thought there were more complications from surgery at Mass General than where he worked in Copenhagen. But then he said he realized that, no, it was actually just that they were talking about the complications because they felt they could learn from them and they wanted to know how to improve and that was the way to do it. Uh, what sort of the genesis of what we call morbidity and mortality conferences where the idea is to learn from the mistakes. And, and in his mind, this was not something that was being done in Denmark. Um, he also trained under a man named Henry Beecher who really viewed anesthesia as 
kind of inclusive of, of involving a lot of different aspects of medical care and different specialties, and that it was important to sort of had a broad range of knowledge across the specialties and to learn from individuals in other specialties. And he took all of that back with him to Denmark. And so he was in that sense, a pretty extraordinary physician in that he really had this breadth and depth of interest and knowledge across specialties, even though he had trained in just one, and also a willingness and ability as a junior person to have the courage to speak up. And that's ultimately what he does. He's brought in this epidemic. Nobody really knows what he can offer or suggest. He's speaking to man, Henry Lassen, who's you know, 15, 20 years older than him, than him, professor in chief of one of the main hospitals in Copenhagen. And he's a nothing. He's in a, a specialty that's existed for a year. He doesn't have a permanent job. And yet he has the courage of his convictions. And he reflected that this training in, in Boston and really change that. And so when I'm speaking to medical audiences, I really encourage the junior trainees to seek experience in other systems of healthcare, because I think that even today, it's so important to recognize that there's a lot to be learned just from seeing how other people do things. And it really does open your mind to different ways of thinking. Oh, oh absolutely, completely. And, and so much of what you said resonates with me. That does. And I love what you said about there wasn't more failure. They were just talking about it more openly. And this came up on, on the podcast recently. And I'm, I'm trawling my brain. I think it may have been my discussion with Dr. Amy Edmondson about psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And, and apologies to whoever it was if it wasn't Amy Edmondson. But uh, a recent guest was sharing how, and again, I'm being a bit blurry on this because this has just come back to me, where people talked more about mistakes more mistakes were being made. So therefore that suggests on the face of it that vulnerability wasn't working. But actually when you analyze it, it's because people were talking about it. Right, right. And, and therefore you're un- un- uncovering it. So that's exactly what you were saying there. And on that theme of talking about it, you know, I, I smiled when I read, you know, Ibsen really took a lead in talking to people from different disciplines, which wasn't being done then. So, you know, actually creating an environment where doctors with different areas of speciality would all share their knowledge and learn from each other. And he even set up medical salons at his home to get everyone talking. And I don't know how much you're aware of this, but across the course of history and particularly British history, but I think it plays out in in US history as well. Some of the great thinkers set up salons where they got together in coffee shops and they talked and they shared ideas and and for me, it's a fascinating part of history. Some of the earliest networking, in a formal sense, if you like, was a sharing of ideas. And, and Ibsen did exactly that. So what did that achieve for him? What was the upshot of him doing that? Yeah, I think the upshot is that he ultimately is able to think beyond his own specialty. And as I alluded to, after the polio epidemic, he suggests this approach to taking care of these patients. It works. It's implemented by Henry Lassen, and we'll maybe get touch on this more later, but in a very dramatic way, he implements it because they don't have ventilators. So they actually call on the medical students of Copenhagen to come sit at the bedside of these patients and hand ventilate them 24 hours a day. And that's a whole other piece we can talk about. But, you know, he sees what it takes 
to care for these polio patients. And when he moves to this community hospital, he initially sets up just a little post-operative recovery area, you know, taking care of the patients he's used to seeing in the operating room, the surgical patients. But he's able to think beyond that. And he recognizes that this new approach to ventilation that kept polio patients alive can actually be used to care for anybody who has respiratory failure. They could have pneumonia, they could have a trauma, they could have surgery, whatever it is that he can provide care that will help to keep them alive with this new technique and with the sort of expertise of nurses and everything else that went with that. And that's the real leap of thinking and understanding that takes him well outside of the operating room and allows him to create this first modern intensive care unit where he's taking care of medical patients and other patients who are not part of his purview. You know, that's not who he was trained to care for. And to rewind to the moment when he suggests this intervention, you know, he's called on to give advice about how to take care of polio patients. He walks into Henry Lassen's office And there's 20 people in the room. This is August 25th, 1952. We know the date. And, uh, you know, Henry Lassen says to him, what do you know about taking care of polio patients? And his answer is he's never taken care of a polio patient in his life. Yet he has ideas about what to do for them. And I think that ability to think so far outside the box, and in this case, so far outside the operating room, speaks to how he really deployed this breadth and depth of knowledge and engagement and interest in other people's areas of medicine and expertise. Create a greater impact as a mentor. Discover how to find the right person to mentor you and make sure that mentoring thrives in your organization with the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring. Andy Lapata and Dr. Ruth Gotian's new book comes out in May and is available to pre-order now. I, I got the sense from reading the book, and, and you've touched on this in terms of the difference between U.S. culture and European culture at the time, that this was a fairly fresh approach and that normally yeah. seniority and speciality, specialism, would direct whose voice gets heard. So how much did that that traditional hierarchy and segmentation of speciality, how much did that hinder attempts to find cures and treatments for polio originally, and how much was it broken down by what Ibsen did? Yeah, so within the epidemic itself, we have a little evidence that there was a delay because when it was first, it was a junior doctor actually who worked at the same hospital as Lassen, a name Mogens Bjornvo, who suggested that they bring in Ibsen. And Lassen was resistant. He said no at first. And what he did instead, and this speaks to the way things normally worked, instead he called on a friend and colleague who was a professor of uh, medicine at the university to come kind of consult and give his opinion about what should be done. He would only bring in someone at his own level where, you know, the sort of willingness to even admit that he had a problem he couldn't solve was clearly a struggle. And so he delays inviting Ibsen. Instead, this other professor comes and has nothing to offer. He's not able to think outside the box because He's just, you know, not coming at it from this different perspective. He doesn't have the skill set that Ibsen has and the knowledge that Ibsen has in the end. But it speaks to the fact that he was resistant at first. It also speaks to the fact that Lassen ultimately deserves credit 
for being willing. You know, I think there are many people who would have just stopped there and said, right, nihilism, there's nothing we can do for these people. I've consulted everybody who's worth consulting. And he was willing ultimately to listen and give an opportunity to someone who he very clearly considered his kind of inferior in the medical system. And uh, I really do think that that I, I'm always struck by the fact that he did ultimately allow this to proceed. So within that epidemic, there was clearly a delay because of this kind of adherence to hierarchy. I think more broadly, there's another example from the polio world. In fact, there was a woman named Sister Kenny, who was Australian, and she really pioneered the idea that the way to rehabilitate individuals who had paralysis from polio was early intervention, stretching of the muscles with kind of heating of them, and then early movement to try to keep the muscles functioning. This was actually against the the kind of norms of the 20s and 30s, which was basically put people in frames and, and kind of truss them up like chickens and don't let them move, and that you needed to do this for months and months and months. And it was a huge battle against individuals who were entrenched with this idea that this was the way to treat polio patients. And she really persevered. She came to the United States. She gave a lot of lectures, met a lot of nasty resistance, primarily from physicians who treated polio patients. And it's, you know, you read her, the the story or biography of her, and it's just infuriating because you know she's right in terms of her approach and you're sort of watching her battle this out. And ultimately her ideas do take hold. And in fact, at the Blydenham Hospital in this epidemic, they did use her methods for caring for polio patients. But it does speak to the fact that anybody who was considered an outsider, not an expert in polio to with the right credentials, it could be a real battle to be heard. So back to my question, reflecting between the 1950s and the 2020s, how much has changed? And how much does a hierarchy and a focus on specialism and a respect for expertise hinder innovation. And I'm asking this of you for the purposes of this conversation about the medical field, the healthcare sector, but actually anyone listening to this could be asking that question of their own sector as well. Because I think, you know, one of the things is to listen to what we're talking about and play it back to ourselves. You know, how does this show up in other places? But from your perspective, in your world, does this still exist? Yeah, it it absolutely still exists. Again, I think we've gotten better in some regards. I think the focus on diversity and inclusivity that has been a real drive in the last, you know, kind of 10 years or so really speaks to this recognition that we are better for having people with different backgrounds and perspectives as part of whatever our team is. In my particular field of intensive care, this has been a real shift uh, in terms of the idea of multidisciplinary rounds, the idea that the best way to take care for someone who is really complex, medically critically ill, you've got to have pharmacists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, respiratory therapists, as well as physicians and nurses all at the table at the same time talking about the patient to give them the best care. And that really has become the model and the norm for best care for our patients. That said, <laughs> I think that there is enormous still just tribalism, uh, and that is a, a human instinct to kind of close ranks and to uh, want to be around people who think similarly, feel similarly, are trained similarly. And that is something that I still see. You know, most intensive care units, weirdly, there's neurointensive care units and medical intensive care units and cardiac surgery intensive care units. 
And often the people who care for the patients in each of those places uh, are sort of separate groups, even though we're all fundamentally dealing with the same issues. I once visited an academic medical center, I won't name it, where <laughs> I went to dinner and was taking to dinner and uh, I suddenly discovered that everybody at dinner with me was introducing themselves to each other, even though they all worked at the same university in the same specialty. And it turned out that they worked in different units with these very slight differences in terms of the focus of the care they provided. And, and some of them had never met. And I found that extraordinary that that was what we were still battling was this sort of siloed approach to specialism and care that we still are, are battling to break down. So I think it, it, within my area of medical care, we've made definitely some strides. And I do think that those issues around diversity and inclusivity, of course, are, are universal in terms of how they can be beneficial. I, I do definitely find that silo thinking painfully commonplace across uh, industries and even in much smaller companies than you would expect. It, it, even in relatively small companies, you find colleagues that don't know each other or, or literally don't talk to each other about how their work complements each other and, and, and they could be supportive of each other. And, and I often rail that I find more competition than collaboration internally in many organizations. So with that in mind, you've, you, a lot of what we've discussed goes to to a degree under the banner of internal politics and power games comes into this as well. A lot of people struggle with this. And it's a question that I'll be asked fairly regularly. You know, how do I navigate uh, internal politics? How do I have this conversation with a colleague that's not supportive of me? Various things along those lines. What have you learned from this project in terms of how you would approach such challenges going forward? You know, what are the ways you go about? Um, I don't even like saying playing the internal politics game because I think the most effective way is not to play it, but to navigate around it. But but what have you learned that you would take into your own approach? Oh, such a hard question. <laughs> and it's um, got to be at least one curveball when you took my earlier one off of Yeah, you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Couldn't be a straightforward discussion. I uh, know. Um, you know, I think it's the listening piece. It, it's so easy to jump to conclusions about who someone is, what they can offer, you know, what they're thinking, what they're feeling, why they're having that reaction. And, you know, ultimately going back to the book, Henry Lassen listens and he's not used to, I think, listening. <laughs> and he withholds judgment. He's apparently not convinced in the beginning when Ibsen starts telling him what he's recommending, but he's willing to withhold judgment and give it a chance. And, and I do think that that's a, a lot of what I've learned and is to just take that extra deep breath and before reacting to things and to not trust my initial reaction necessarily, right? And not to dismiss things or go with things because that sort of is the first thing that kind of comes to mind as being the right thing to do. And actually really taking more time to understand people's backgrounds, actually, where they're coming from and why. And that has been really helpful. I actually had a recent situation like that where someone's going to tone to me and the way they were responding kind of got my goat up a little bit. And I was kind of venting this to a colleague, sort of saying, you know, 
feeling annoyed. And they gave me some perspective on this person and what they were dealing with and sort of not to excuse them so much, but just to help me to understand better why they were like this. And I, and I actually found it immensely helpful. It sort of gave me a lot more kind of compassion in a way for what they were, for what they were dealing with and therefore why their sort of potentially slightly inappropriate response to me might be something that I would just sort of, you know, let go and, and move on from. So I've definitely learned a lot in that regard, trying to deal with people. You know, I liken my job in the intensive care unit as sort of being the, the crossing guard. You know, you're basically dealing with people from all different specialties, coming through, giving advice, lots of people who care about this patient, and you're at the center of it. And so it is a lot of synthesizing information and figuring out how to work with everybody from a lot of different backgrounds. I, I think that's great advice. Thank you for that. I want to go to something that you've mentioned once or twice, and it's a big part of the book. And in terms of looking at the power of relationships and the support that we can get from other people is is compelling and, and really powerful. And that's the, the huge uh, volunteer program and sacrifice made by people who, who sat by bedsides, hand responsible respirating, if that's the right phrase, the, the patients in the early stage. You know, we're so used to seeing ICU units now with respirators next to beds, enabling people to breathe permanently. What is so hard to picture is that this was done manually 24 hours a day by a vast army of volunteers. Tell us more about that because I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's really, it, it, to your point, it is the heart of the book. And I have a lot of interviews with the medical students and such who did this. So once they realized that this approach to ventilation worked, to your point, they did not have ventilators to roll in and just flick on a switch to keep people alive and walk away. They had to do this manually with a rubber bag and an oxygen tank, essentially. And so they call on the medical students of Copenhagen. Initially, a couple dozen come, and then they realize they need hundreds. And ultimately, they work with 1,200 medical and dental students who provide this care, sitting at the bedside, six to eight-hour shifts. If someone didn't show up, they had to just keep going no matter how tired they were, no matter where they had to be. They got apparently a 10-minute cigarette break every hour and then a shorter, you know, a slightly longer break for lunch or dinner. But it was pretty grueling work. And for many of them, they'd never even touched a patient before. So this was completely outside of their comfort zone for many of them. At the same time, it was apparently an extraordinary experience, of course, that they they got to know these patients. These patients were awake. A lot of them were children. They would read to them. They would talk to them, tell stories. One of the medical students I met who was 90 years old when I got to, to meet her had ultimately named her child for one of the patients she cared for in this epidemic. And I think you you were ref referencing the fact that, of course, that, you know this was a huge volunteer effort. They did ultimately get paid a little bit, for their time, but you know, probably not nearly enough for what they were being put through. And a lot of them sacrificed a year of medical school. They stepped away from their studies. Some of them did step away from jobs that paid the rent, sort of just because they felt it was the right thing to do and that they were needed. And so it's an extraordinary, what I call in the book, an army of hands that came forward to help. And and I love it because it is sort of the the feel-good part of the book to think about those extraordinary volunteer efforts that people just stepped up when needed. And of course, it wasn't them. Nurses came out of retirement. Other people, you know, kind of came from Sweden and across the country to come help. 
the city of Copenhagen provided an enormous amount of money, gave kind of Lassen carte blanche with finances to do what he needed to do to keep people alive. So I, I view it as just an extraordinary sort of community effort to rally around everyone in such a difficult time and you know kind of gives me gives me hope for humans and and there are echoes of of the many stories from covid of how many people really just stepped up and speaks to the fact that you know when it comes to to being part of a community people really uh are extraordinary in terms of what they will do not to mention the risks to these individuals um, of getting polio. None of them did, but uh, that was a, a very real risk, you know, again, as it was in COVID. How much of that motivation to volunteer, that willingness to make that sacrifice on several levels, as you've said, comes down to a community response to a community crisis? And how much of it would only happen because of something that the leaders behind this project did, something they said, the way they said it, the way they enrolled people into supporting it. So what did the leaders of the project do that meant that people would make that sacrifice? It's a great question. And I'll be honest, I think my research maybe didn't get to that very well. Um, it was a little bit spotty in terms of understanding how the recruitment was done. We know that there were a few lectures given to the medical students where time was given to Henry Lassen and others to speak to them, to say you are needed. And again, this may also speak to the fact that people like Henry Lassen were incredibly respected uh, in Denmark, in Copenhagen, as a, a physician and leader. And so that may have had something to do with their willingness to come help. But my sense is it was more just that community you know, feedback that, that it trickled through the ranks of medical students that they were needed, sort of one telling of the next. They'd seen it as a notice on a bulletin board. Those were the stories I got was I saw this notice, I went because it said I was needed. And so I do think that it was not, nobody was expecting accolades. Nobody was going because they, you know, felt they were going to get special recognition for what they were about to do. They, in fact, they didn't even really know what they were being asked to do when they came to the hospital and the descriptions of their kind of feeling totally bewildered. They get this five minute, you know, kind of explanation for what they're needed for and then set to work. And so I think it was more that sort of sense of community and just doing what they considered right in the moment. So just to finish off, you've touched on this in some way in how you would respond to, to politics internally, but I get the sense from talking to you that you, you set out to write a book about, as you say, the origin story of your area of speciality, but there's so much more in this in terms of professional relationships, in terms of learning from each other, in terms of supporting each other and more. Do you think it's impacted how you engage and do you think it's given you more confidence to reach out for help? How do you see it's impacted you in your day-to-day -day work? Yeah, well, there's many ways it's impacted me. I think, you know, the biggest one is just every time I put someone on a ventilator, I think about those students. And I think about, in a way, how lucky we are that I am able to have a respiratory therapist just roll in a ventilator, flick a switch, and away we go. And that's just an extraordinary thing that we do every day for people. That's not really what you were asking. I think that in terms of 
the way I work on rounds, where you know, rounds being where we go around each patient and, and go through their data and, and formulate a plan for them for the day, um, I am much more aware of ensuring that every voice around me is being heard. I will pause much more now and say to the nurse there, is there anything else that you want to add? Anything we should know about the patient? Any concerns you have? Uh, same thing with you know anyone else who's there part of the rounds. And trying to give people that space without recognizing they're not all Bjorn Ibsen's and they're not all just going to speak up. And I think that I'm very aware that I never know where that little important piece of information is going to come from that is really important for the care of that patient. So I would say probably that's the way it's most impacted me in terms of interacting with individuals who are part of a team who are coming at it from different places and have different knowledge and expertise. Hannah, that's that's great to hear. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for our conversation today and for writing the book. As I said at the beginning, it's probably not one I would reach out and pick up on the topic matter. I loved it. I was fascinated. And hopefully that comes through in, in the conversation. And I think that when you write a book that, that jumps across from a specialist interest area into general reading and, and creates that effect, you should be very proud of yourself. So thank you so much for sharing. And thank you for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks again to Hannah. And, and I, I honestly can't recommend the book enough. I really enjoyed it. It's a great read. And I started out by saying, what's this got to do with professional relationships? Trust me, there are so many questions I didn't have time for. There's so many other things that came out of that. The way that one of the delays in getting a global solution was that papers were written in Danish or Swedish from the Scandinavian researchers and people didn't know about it. Looking at the stability in leadership at the hospital, you know, they had just two heads of the hospital between 1879 and 1939 and looking at what that brings to an organization in terms of the ability to explore new ideas and take risks as well. Those are just two of the things we didn't have time to explore, but should give you a sense of sometimes it's good to read something that's not on the face of it about what you want to learn, but the subtext you can is something that you can take so much from. And, and that's where I would categorize Hannah's book as well as genuinely a fascinating read. And Hannah said in her last answer there, every time she looks at a patient on a, on a respirator oh i can't even say it respiratory respiratory machine let's call it that i need to put my teeth back in today every time she looks at someone on one of those machines she thinks of it in a different way and when i read the book you know there's so much we take for granted and it made me uh, look at it in that way as well so thank you so much to hannah for joining us thank you for joining us as well if you've enjoyed this please do leave a rating uh, leave a review on the podcast channel of your choice for example if you're listening on your iphone just open up the podcast and press the five stars. That's all you have to do. And it all helps other people find the podcast. Well, I really appreciate it. I'm sure our guests do as well, because it means more people find their episodes. So you're doing everyone a service for very little effort. So that would be appreciated. But whatever you do, join us again next week for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.